0: You're listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast of readings and archives from City Lights books and publishers. To learn more, visit www.citylights.com. City Lights, uh, we've
1: been hosting Susan Seinberg for many, many years. (laughs) We love her work. Books like The Spectacle, Hydroplane, The End of Free Love. These are all short story collections. What's really unique about tonight and wonderful <laughs> and, and auspicious is the it's fact auspicious. that your new book, Machine, is her debut novel. <laughs> and so, uh, very, very excited about that. And published by a wonderful indie press, Grey Wolf. And we're also very happy to have Ethan, who is the editorial director at Grey Wolf, with us tonight. Um, he's edited some amazing people, including. Carmen Maria Machado, uh, Maggie Nelson. I don't know how many of his authors actually you can see all these National Book Awards, Pulitzer Prizes, and so on and so forth. So very honored, Davin, also with us (laughs) back here again. Um, So welcome to City Lights to you both, and congratulations.
0: Thanks. (laughs) Oh, okay, so I was We're just going to ask. We're very long people. Yes, exactly. And no, Susan, and I, Susan and I project, but now we will project into the microphones. So um, I love coming to City Lights. I, I've been coming to the store since I was 14 years old, I think. And I think maybe my first book of poetry I ever bought on my own steam um, was in the poetry section, which used to be down directly down below us, um, which, was, um, which was Kaddish. I think it was my very first book of poems that I bought myself. But um, so anyway, really wonderful to be here. Wonderful to here with Susan, who's been here many times for her for several books. And um, um, we're going to talk tonight about a book called Machine, which was just published by Graywolf a few weeks ago. And um, and yes, interesting, because uh, Susan has only written short story collections still. and still And and still, yes, there's some debate as to how we talk about or categorize this novel. And I think um, um, I work with Susan a bit at Grey Wolf, and she also works mostly with another editor named Steve Woodward. And um, we spent a long time telling Susan, don't worry about what to call it. That's our problem. Um, And, uh, you know, that these issues of category um, are, to me, um, marketing issues and shelving issues that bookstores need to figure out, but they're... um, totally irrelevant to the creation and uh, reading of, of literary art. So, But we'll talk about that a little bit more, about maybe how this book came to be. Uh, but one of the things that's interesting to me, and one of the things that is so sort of formally defiant about Susan's work is um, that her background is not really in write, in the, in the traditional sort of writing program writing. She's not only a writer who didn't go to an MFA program in writing, but she came out of the visual arts and painting, and I wondered, Susan, if you could tell us a little bit about that, because Susan's work is often called experimental, but to me, it often looks not so experimental, but like painting, actually, so I wondered if you could talk to us a little bit about your arts background, as it were, and how that moved into your writing background, or yeah. your writing career.
2: Um, yeah, I mean, I think i looking back, and now I know for a fact, because I just went through all my old stuff, just to clear out some stuff in my apartment a few years ago, I found a bunch of writings I'd done when I was really young, like uh, like back, like junior high, even a couple from sixth grade, a lot of stuff from high school, and um that looks exactly like what I write now, um formally, so I think as
0: formally, in the layout on the page or how on does the page,
2: the yeah. voice like. You could I saved some of it, I'll share it with you someday. It's pretty bizarre. But um but what I was really good at, I guess, was drawing when I was a kid. So I I knew that I would just end up doing art and um ended up in art school. Didn't I wasn't a very good student until I got to art school. In fact, I was a really bad student. Like I didn't go to class that much and didn't do well. So art really kind of saved me doing art in a college. Um in an art school, particularly, um, but um, I would say you know I started writing because or writing more seriously because when not I was ranting really I was just like writing what made me writing about stuff that I was angry about um, mostly like you know girls flirting with my boyfriend or something like that and I would just rant about it or you know politi- subjects
0: of state study over they're the, the
2: same yeah some more political issues back then and. Then, um, you know, mostly when my paintings were drying, so I would just write just to sort of expend more of that energy that I had from painting. Painting so physical, and you know, I had to keep going. I, you don't, I didn't get tired. In fact, I got energy from it. So I would just have to keep doing something while I was waiting. And you know, I started taking writing workshops. I moved to Boston from my hometown and. Um, had a a painting studio there but I started taking writing workshops around that time just for fun just to see I thought maybe I was uh, writing poetry but they told me I was not (laughs) and should not even try that um I was in no way a poet (laughs) um she's like unbreak those lines and I think you have a story which is actually what happened and so um so yeah, so writing came out of it that way, but I've I i would, I've learned over the years that my writing process and my painting process are pretty similar. They're almost identical, just different mediums. I put a lot of stuff down, and then I take a lot of stuff off, and I just keep doing that until it feels balanced and finished.
0: Yeah, I mean, I... Um... Well, first, actually, I want a, a digression that, which is that um, you write a lot about teenagers and uh, young adults, as it not in the as in the young adult bookstore category, but as an actual young adults. Um, and uh, so now, I'm very curious about the Steinberg juvenilia, which is what's the difference <laughs> between the teenagers when you were writing those things as a teenager and your teenagers now?
2: The um, the difference between the teenagers. I mean, I have more control over these teenagers than I did then. <laughs>
0: and certainly, than they do over themselves.
2: Yeah, I mean, I don't think I don't think my teenagers writing as a teenager knew. I mean, there's some in, there are some insights that surprise me when I read them now, but um, but I feel like now I have you know. The you know, decades of distance on that, and I can see it much more clearly. But I feel like I'm also looking so closely through that lens that um, I'm still, like, recalling all of that stuff at the same time. I just know... I think I know what to do with it now, and I didn't then, you know? Or
0: maybe I do, maybe I don't. We'll come back to teenagers. There's more to say. <laughs> but, um, but, but coming back to, to... Getting back to painting, I mean, I I've always seen... There's a poetic quality to the the way Susan's um, prose is laid out on the page. Uh, Throughout this book, it changes. Some of the lines are very short. Some of the lines are longer. And there is certainly a musical quality to it, it looks like poetry often but to me, um, it's interesting to hear you sort of talk about scraping away at the material to um, get it to work because it seems to me that a lot of it is sort of the layering on of paint you know, getting the right, you know, I, I, I think about you know, when I first read your manuscripts, I think about it in terms of like thickness in some ways, uh, you know, that the lines look thicker or thinner or that they, you, know, you dwell in a moment of character but just to kind of get the paint thicker is there any sense that you're um, that you're models that you're looking at are more in a way almost visual obviously there's a visual effect a concrete effect on the page but um are, uh, were you looking at literary models for the kind of experimentation you're doing or did it really feel like it came orally through the ear yeah. and through painting
2: i mean I, I i've been asked that question before about inf- literary influence and i i've never been able to answer it well and i think i've you know, I tried lying for a I mean, while I don't see it is my, is, <laughs> yeah, yeah, because it's not it's actually probably not there. you know i I think it's not coming from any literature. I think it really is coming from process, like my own personal process of making things. and that you know what it looks like now, like what it looks like as this isn't what it looked like when it started, when I started with it. So then you know, in terms of thinking of layering paint. You know, I was I do work that way, where I you know I put something down and I put something over that and I put something over that and then I might peel away one line, you know, and keep doing that process. But there's a part, there's a time, you know, in the process where I just start taking a lot more of it off um, and trimming it down, and that. Yeah, that takes a while. That's years into it, I think.
0: Hasn't the book stayed the same number of pages through many multiple drafts? Yeah, it
2: doesn't matter what I do. I can't get over 150 pages. Yeah. in the... Both books actually um, are the almost the, ex- ex- the same word count they're like thirty three thousand words or look a, a
0: writer stretches her canvas and that's got that size <laughs> yeah <you know? laughs> that's right.
2: I work and yeah, right you get depth in different ways and I can go really interior I can go really into someone's mind,
0: but it doesn't really make it a longer book <laughs> <laughs> um, so this book in particular um, is. Essentially, is a, a mosaic, I would say, of a summer um, on the shore in the tri-state area. I never really specified, <laughs> but let's—I um, will. Um, I'm using some biographical supposition that I happen to have knowledge of, and um, and it's a. It, it, there's a an event that reverberates through the main characters. Um, consciousness uh, where the young woman or young girl, teenage girl drowns. And uh, this has a ripple effect um, on the community in a a way, but the community is divided. Um, There's sort of a townie versus summer vacation divide. There's a real class divide um, that's described very poignantly in this book, mostly through the eyes of the narrator who's unnamed, um, unplaced as it were, Um, the place is never specified. Um, but part of this book, um, and I think part of a lot of uh, Susan's fiction, is um, about the way women get looked at by men and the way they're, um, they come into a sense of their bodies. And so she's taken these young women, um, this, specifically this young girl, and has given just a ferocious glimpse at um, adolescence and young girlhood. It's a, and the book... Um, is a book of questions, not answers. So there's a way in which I could imagine if you know, Susan were a very different kind of novelist um, and you'd have a novel about, oh, um, a bunch of young teenagers at the shore and a terrible tragedy happens and um, it reverberates and they learn something about themselves. Susan's characters, um, there's no resolution for them. Spoiler. <laughs> spoiler, and, <laughs> spoiler. and um, there are no answers to what happened um there um is not even exactly ambivalence i would say there's just this fact that um that happens and there's no glossing it over or coming to terms with it um and it's a it's the great bravery of, of susan's fiction i think is um is her absolute insistence on not sentimentalizing um the fact that this young girl died and there's nothing to do about it it's not a piece to um Make the other characters learn something about themselves. Um, so there's that great thing. But the, but what Susan's I think does incredibly is show these young women um, who kind of think they're badass, I guess, but also are completely contri- like. Enthral of the structures of patriarchy, you know, and of how they should behave. And I wonder if you could just bring us into that with just reading a couple. Actually, to, I wanted this is I didn't warn you. Um, just read like just the three <laughs> paragraphs just on page five But okay. I, I think gives a sense. Of, I didn't um, know this was going to. Sorry. So excited. I know. I know. I, I needed. I needed. I needed to leave Susan with a couple of surprises. Um, okay. Just um, at the very top of page five, and maybe you could read through. Maybe the third, third paragraph. Just to give you a sense of like what the book feels. This is You're right at the end. open. This isn't the very opening of the book.: I'm end here. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. Um. We're, the s-
2: <clears throat> we're the stars the summer of the shore. We open up our throats to drink. We drink whatever is poured in our cups. We don't care if things get mixed, like brown drinks mixed with clear, like clear drinks mixed with wine. We don't care whose shirt we're wearing, whose car we're in, whose boat. We're the girls this summer everyone wants. And we dance up on the guys. We dance up on the chairs. We tie cherry stems into knots with our tongues. We open our mouths to show you the perfectly knotted stems. The girl who drowned was a local girl. She was no one we knew well. We knew her tan lines when she wore a dress. We knew what they said about her. She was a knockout, they said, the guys all said. Even my father said she was a knockout. But she wasn't that bright, my father said. So there was no one to blame, he said, for her drowning but her. But I often wonder about that night. I often think about that girl. I save the word killers under
0: my tongue. So I think you get a little, a little taste of just, you know, just the incredibly sharp-edged and just pulls-no-punches prose um, that really animates uh, all of Susan's work, but I think especially this novel. And all of these pieces in the book, which Susan thought were short stories for a while, maybe they were related, they all seem to be about this, you know, maybe about this event. There was a choral voice originally. They all kind of, kind of circle around this, you know, this event um, in some ways. Uh, but what's interesting, you know, to me here is sort of this sense of these um, these girls aware of their own sexuality, of its power over the, you know, it's, it, it, a certain kind of power you might say, but um, but one that actually they're not totally in control of, and one that gets, of course, controlled by uh, by men. Um, but this is a quality and an aspect of your work that often has been misunderstood, and I am really intrigued by the way that you come at these issues of sexuality but then seem to be always misunderstood by your male readers um, <laughs> and i wonder if you could tell talk a little bit about that happened with the spectacle a lot and i was wondering how you engage with that and how, what your thinking was going into this book given the reaction of the first book so maybe you or not the first book but with your last book
2: i mean i have some ideas about that i'm i'm kind of curious about like your take on what the misread is before i go into it, well, because I want to make my sure. Sense is, my, my
0: sense is that, is that men read those passages, the cherry stem and all of that stuff, and they're like, this is hot.
2: Right, okay, that's what I thought you meant. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that does happen. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, that's been a problem, I guess. I, I, I mean, the bigger problem, and I think what I went into Spectacle, the previous book, um, thinking about was how often readers often male readers um think that I am the narrator and so that was a really big problem for me um with my first couple of books because I wasn't and it felt like I was limited to writing you know safer things or something or or I should be um or risk everyone thinking that I had done the things that my narrator did which I only did some of them (laughs) so I I needed I, you know going into the last book, I wanted to call attention to that you know by confronting the audience or the reader more in it, and making the reader making the narrator do you know things that I would never do, you know, and just letting people think it was me and so that was fun, and then that happened again with this one, but this one probably um I'm getting it less actually, yeah, for the first time, so um I think. You know, I don't know. know. There there was just
0: that, there was a terrific review in The Nation of this book just a few days ago that really did explain the way this book attacks ideas of um, hyper masculinity and patriarchy, which I thought was really nice and very satisfying to (laughs) read. It made me
2: feel really cool. I really liked it a lot. I felt like I was part of some club, you know, that being guys (laughs) I felt really cool but um I really I really liked talking about it that way or thinking about it that way I think about it that way but um you know it's hard to pull that off like I'm I'm a woman writer I write young girls um it's first person and they're not they're not even hiding from any of that, you know, being girls and what happens to young girls. It's all in the book. Or or their
0: enjoyment of some aspects of that.
2: Yeah, exactly. Or, you know, working with that completely, like knowing how they can manipulate because they're, you know, in these positions in this particular town. But, um, you know, I I guess, you know, reading this review – opened up some thinking for me about the thing I want to write next more than anything because I feel like it's time to just write masculinity, you know, and and feel like I can do that if I want to. Um, but, you know, I've never, um, I never really felt like any of these books were, um, I don't know, I, I'm, I'm not sure how to get it around this, or into this question because I feel like there are so many, I have so many options, but, um, I want to write...
0: Pick one, he fans them out.
2: I want to write to a male audience, too. You know, that's always been important to me. I, I don't want to write... I'm not a a woman writer writing just for women, and I, I want whoever, you know, picks up the book to be able to find a way into it and, you know, take something from it. And I think that there has been a lot of... Um, you know, with the past two books talking about gender. Um, but with this this review, it was the first time I think anyone focused fully on masculinity and um and it was a male reviewer, I believe. And um I, I just I don't know, it just it it felt refreshing to me more than anything. I think some people maybe disagreed with it, you know, because it wasn't focusing. Somehow on the girls, but I thought it actually really
0: was. Well, there's an argu- there's a probably a, an assessment here that would say that women will nod their heads to this book, and some men might say, "Oh, right. You know, <laughs> right." So you know, a book should be able to open out to various readings for different people, and I think Susan's has that level of complexity and complication that it will have. It is meant to have different responses for for what people might bring into the book. And I think I'm kind of
2: avoiding. The, your question which is about what do you do about the guys who think your book is hot <laughs> or that you are hot because you wrote the book or all of that um and I feel like every book I write is a new way of confronting that you know it's like or well maybe I can focus it and I mean, I like the question. Well,
0: But, but maybe, the, the, this is related, which is, and I, or maybe, I, I guess I wonder what, whether it was related, because I never really asked you exactly what you meant, I think, assuming that I knew what you meant. <laughs> um, but now I get to ask you explicitly. Um, secrets of the editors. Um, <laughs> so you said to me and Steve at various stages, as you, were, as you were coming into the final drafts of this book, is, I don't know if it's ugly enough. You know, I want it to be ugly enough. Can you talk a little bit about what you meant by that?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think um, I think this was one of the problems I had as a painter. Um, I, I think uh, trying to tell an ugly story through painting for me still always sort of resulted in a pretty surface, and I couldn't, I couldn't get. Beyond that, you know, it's just people would just be like, oh, I, I like the way that looks, you know, or I like that surface. I like that paint quality or whatever. But for me, the narrative in it was so ugly and about something so painful that um, I just realized at a certain point, maybe I wasn't being direct enough. And, and writing was a, a way to do that. Um, and so I think in this, you know, I'm always sort of worried that um, I'm being too nice, that I'm, you know, I'm not being hard enough on the reader. This is a
0: little bit funny.
2: (laughs) And that I, you know, I'm, I don't know, that maybe my sentences are going to be pretty, you know, and that that um, will mask somehow the darker story that I want to tell, and, but we want that too, like we want the sentences to be good too, so. Yeah, I was a little worried about this one, and I and I really did say to both Ethan and Steve, like, you know, is this ugly enough? And then Ethan wrote to, texted me the other day, it is ugly enough, um, because or something like that, because that review basically said it was. It used the word repellent. I was thrilled. I knew
0: Yes, I was going which I knew <laughs> yes, would really delight Susan. I was like, it's repellent. It's repellent. Yay! <laughs> <be> so happy. <laughs> um, so yeah, so this book does circle around this incident, um, but I should say that um, um, that Susan for a while thought she was writing a, a, a short stories, and in um, uh, a lot of the episodes here. Well, I keep on telling Susan to call them chapters, not stories, um, but she's still she's still failing at um, and. Um, but some of them don't seem to be related directly to the story, and she's going to read one of those chapters now, I think. Right now. Right now. Oh,
2: my God. This Night is full of surprises. <laughs> I will. Okay. So I've, this is the second time that I've read in San Francisco in the, la- in the past couple of weeks. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm reading a different section because some of you are at the other reading. Um, Do you think that'll that'll work? I can get you a mic stand. If you want. I can I can just sort of do this. Yeah. Okay. I'm just. I can kneel look. and hold the book. <laughs> <laughs> I I would want that if it were <laughs> video <laughs> and not audio. <laughs> um, so this section is um, there. There are 14 sections in this, and Ethan would call them chapters, and. Um, There are seven titles, so each title belongs to two sections, and this one is called Machines. If I never learned the earth was spinning, that there was no bottom and there was no top, that light from stars that I could see left years before I could see the light, that so many stars could now be gone, that the sun one day as well would be, that this wasn't the kind of thing to overthink, And if I never learned to overthink, if I could switch thoughts off before they started to spin, take that first celebrity suicide, I mean the first one in our lives. He wrote a note, then shot himself. We weren't supposed to hear this. They were whispering, so we wouldn't. It was our mother and a neighbor from down the street. We called her aunt, but she wasn't our aunt. She was these kids' mother, and we hated her kids. We hated her more. She made our mother act so dumb. She made her drink too much. They were drinking this day a bottle of orange liqueur. The bottom of the bottle was shaped like an orange. It was our fake aunt's bottle she brought over. It was too early to be drinking liqueur. Our fake aunt was often drunk in the day. She was divorced and divorce back then meant something. It meant fucked up kids and it meant your reputation. It meant our fake aunt fell down drunk on her way home from our house. But that was a different day. That day she fell over the hose the help had left in a bunch on the lawn. We heard her scream and it could have been from anything, a scream like that. My brother and I ran outside to see Our fake aunt was face down in the grass. We didn't want to touch her, so we waited for her to get to her knees, figure it out. Our mother didn't drink in the day unless our fake aunt was at our house. Our mother was weak around other women, and we'd always known she was weak. Now here she was, pretending not to be drunk, pretending an interest in us we knew was just pretend. Then, pow, our fake aunt said, and stood, and shaped her hand like a gun at her head. What we said. Our mother said nothing. To our fake aunt, she said, the kids. Our mother never once thought before she spoke. She always ruined it all. My brother said, why the gun? Tell me, he said. I said, tell me. There was no reason to keep a secret from us. We knew too much already. There were bigger things than the things they kept a secret. Like all of space, for instance. Like all I knew about space. Like how spaceships floated in a free fall. How astronauts floated within them. How weightlessness wasn't like floating in water. It wasn't a calming thing. How a single force could push you out of orbit. It could send you to the darkest place because you've never had control. You've always had to pretend it. Now here we all were in a kitchen pretending. Here we all were as if nothing. We were about to leave for a party. It was a bowling party for some kid we didn't like. The bowling alley was on the other side. Our father drove us and told us be good. I wasn't sure if he meant be good at bowling or if he meant be good in some other way. There were holy ways we were never taught but heard about. Certain kids who knew this stuff, kids we would never be. They were kids our mother always called good. But we preferred the asshole kids we hated. This party was full of assholes. My brother bowled, but I sat at the counter. I liked the pizza the bowling alley had. I liked the local guys who served the pizza because they also served me beer. This was because of how I looked. I didn't care what the reason was. I was learning to work with what I had. So I sat there, feeling old. I drank beer from a cup meant for soda. There was music I liked coming from the walls and the sounds of all those crashing pins. Like the sound of gravity, I thought, then thought, it seemed insane. Like how a crush makes you think or just drinking does. But I didn't care there were things in space that couldn't move out of our way. I didn't care then what asteroids struck us, what black holes sucked us closer to its edge. Pretty soon, the other kids were at the counter. They were talking the shit kids always talked, all of them going on and on, that first celebrity suicide. They said he'd shot himself in the head. They said it happened in a kitchen So then I was seeing our kitchen table. Then I was seeing our mother and the bottle shaped like an orange. Then I was seeing our dumb fake aunt, her hand like a gun at her head. Like she was better than him, which she was not. Like she was better than anyone, but she was the absolute worst. There was a night she came by our house with a dog. We were eating dinner and she walked in like she lived there. She held up the dog with one hand and said, does anyone want a dog? My brother and I said, we do. We said, we want that dog. But our mother said no to getting the dog. She said, no way were we getting a dog when we couldn't even help around the house. We looked at each other like, what did that even mean? None of us ever helped around the house. We had help to help around the house. Our mother was just pretending again, but our fake aunt was better than this. This dog was a runt of its litter, she said, and it was the only one that wasn't brown. This dog was gray, she said, and it was the only one with longer hair. Her kid, she whispered behind her hand, had kicked it across a room. Because his parents were divorced is what we thought, and now he was all fucked up. Divorce meant that, and it meant our fake aunt was all dressed up for going out. There was a way one dressed for going out. There was a way one smelled so obvious, so desperate. Our mother said, I said no. But our father was petting the dog now. He had one arm around our fake aunt's waist. He made sounds into the dog's fur. Don't turn this into a thing. Our fake aunt wasn't the one. We hated her, but she wasn't the one we hated the absolute most. And whether or not we got to keep the dog It doesn't matter the outcome of that day. That scene in our kitchen doesn't matter, or any scene in our kitchen, or in any kitchen, or in any room, as if rooms could even protect us, as if the sun would never collapse, and we would just go on forever, obeying some law of inertia, a ball rolling straight down the lane, no force coming in to stop it, There was such dumb hope in those laws, such bullshit in those laws because the ball would eventually hit the pins. It would send them wild across the floor. The pins would eventually hit the walls. A kid would press a small white button. A machine would sweep the pins away. A machine would reset the pins and the whole fucking thing would start over. That celebrity we loved because he was hot And by hot, I mean more than looks. The kids were acting like no big deal, but I felt I was being emptied. Then I felt a shadow moving in, like the shadow of something you can't even see or something you're not supposed to. My brother kept asking questions. He wanted details no one else did. I could see the chewed up pizza on his tongue. I said, close your mouth. He said, what's your problem? I said, close your fucking mouth. What was I even thinking then? It's hard to explain, I guess. Astronauts again, I guess. Forced to travel through unfamiliar space. Nearly everything in it unreachable. Everything in it no better than anything else. Just hydrogen to helium. Just helium to something else. And something else to something else. So what good I learned that day was hot. What good I learned was celebrity. I'd always wanted to have it. I often imagined late at night my entourage, my limousine, my attitude. I often tried to will this future for myself. Though could I even believe in this future? Or could I only believe in the grander one, the destined one, the temporary free fall, the on and on, then off? No wonder the kids shot at their heads, stuck out their tongues, fell to the ground laughing. We were all just so confused. There were times I wanted nothing more than to break free from our orbit. I wanted a force to come in already and upset it. I'd been secretly holding on, I admit, to the hope of this force coming in. Not an asteroid force or a black hole force, but the slightest shred of holy some shred of belief that everything would be revealed, that the world was something conceivable, a linear path directed towards some good. But there would be more celebrity suicides and non-celebrity suicides, and more explosion and more expansion. How could you not overthink it? But the kids got back to bowling. The guy at the counter poured me another beer. I wasn't going to drink this one. I'd already outgrown this moment I called our mother said come get us but our father came instead my brother put up a fight out front he wanted to keep bowling he said he was beating the other kids he said he was now my brother officially the enemy we were staring each other down across an invisible line in the car our father didn't talk my brother sighed again and again and again some old song played on the radio what was out the car window passed too fast i couldn't focus on any of it all those houses whooshing by and all that grass and all those trees all those birds all those stars
0: Susan. Um, Susan's a great reader of her own work. Um, There's a lot to um, take in there. (laughs) One of the things that um, I think some of that passage shows, uh, uh, the stuff at the bowling alley in particular, and the girl drinking beer, is just, just, um, and also the attitude towards the aunt, is just the kind of incredible amorality of teenagers, you know, just the way they... um, (laughs) Um, it's not immorality because obviously this one, you know, the, the this narrator the, of this section has a strong feeling about her aunt is bad, right? So it's, they've got a sense of good and bad, but just this sense of heedlessness in the face of any kind of moral issues, which I think is kind of really happens amongst these almost feral kids running around the shore <laughs> in the summer, um, but it was interesting in talking about what to read, you know, Susan said, Well, I'm gonna read one of the chapters that doesn't really have to do with the story, you know, with the story of, the, <laughs> of a summer on this lake. But my question, which is the sort of question that led to us just saying, Susan, sorry, you wrote a novel, is <laughs> why wasn't that just a flashback? Like that is a. Fl- it's maybe not seamless, but why didn't you why weren't you thinking of this as a kind of flashback in the book? I mean, now I
2: do. <laughs> <laughs> We've bullied her into it. <laughs> we did. Um, I don't know. I, I I guess I didn't know how to write a novel, and I didn't know how to think about a novel, and never wanted to write a novel, and I was resistant and being sort of like bratty, like just bratty about it. I
0: C- could you maybe back up and talk about some of the process of this book because I think that's interesting to people yeah. and you know where, in terms of where it became. But yes, I mean, you were. Well, you'd process, said at one point that you never wanted to write a novel, right?
2: And I'm probably writing one now, though. (laughs) Um, I I mean, okay, so I've only written short story collections, and I tried to write a novel once, and I abandoned it, because it just wasn't going anywhere. Like, I had hundreds and hundreds of pages. (laughs) The longest thing I've ever written, it was 450 pages, and I couldn't figure out what it was. And... And then I had a year off to write. And I was like, "I'm not taking this book with me." So I wrote Spectacle, my previous collection and and kept writing that for years. But when I started writing this next collection that is now a novel, um I was missing some parts in it, and I just felt like I didn't you know, I was teaching myself how to write a linked collection, and that's what I really wanted to write, a collection that had the same narrator, living in the same place, maybe covering the same amount of time. And so all these like holes were in it. And I was like, well, which ones am I going to fill? I'm not going to fill all of them, and which I thought you had to do when you wrote a novel. It turns out you do not. Um, <laughs> and then a friend of mine, um, I was at Yaddo, and I actually met this guy there who um, had written a novel, and he couldn't believe I wasn't planning on writing a novel ever in my life, that I would just write short stories, like what kind of writer would do that? And like, why wouldn't you write a novel? And I was like, I just don't want to. And I I, I don't like even Alice like Alice Monroe,
0: them. Debbie Eisenberg.
2: Yeah, some, I mean, some people don't do it. And so he's, I told him I tried once and I'd abandoned this book. And he was like, well, how long was it? I was like, like 450 pages. He's like, you have to go back and look at it. And I was like, I really don't want to do that ever. But then I, as I was writing this collection, I realized there were scenes I needed. I was like, well, I really want a scene of them on the boardwalk doing something. And I realized, oh, I wrote that in that novel I abandoned. So I, I went back and found it, pulled it out made it work for this book and wrote it as a section, you know, or as a story, actually, is how I was thinking of it. Um, and I just kept mining that old abandoned novel for material for this one. So it turns out I spent five years working, I had spent five years working on an archive for a future book, <laughs> and which I think is okay, right? Just like you don't know you're doing it, <laughs> or you wouldn't. And so, I mean, that was part of the process. So originally, it was a novel, right? Like, I tried to write
0: a novel. You thought you were supposed to.
2: Yeah, and I failed. And then in writing this collection and going back to that novel for the material, it ended up being a novel anyway. Does any of that make sense? (laughs) Yeah.
0: But we did have to convince Susan a little bit. Um, Well,
2: yeah, I mean, Ethan's text to me, I think my agent sent the book on like a Friday and you all got back to me on Monday (laughs) or something. And your text was, I'm really sorry to tell you it's a novel.
0: (laughs) I knew how much you hated them. But
2: But I'm fine with it now. I feel really good about it. (laughs) I mean, about calling it that, sort of.
0: Um, We're still working through it. Yeah, we're still working through it. it. Um, I find the labels really uninteresting, actually, but they're sort of fun to talk. They're sort of fun to talk about, but it's a book, and um, it is, well, a, it made it is a very coherent it universe. Too. That's right, and yeah. and some of the ordering. I mean, the the order of the chapters shifted a, quite a lot in the revision, especially in the work that you did with Steve. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, one of the other qualities of what you read, and actually of your work generally, that I'm sure was well, maybe maybe more or less noticeable to people, is your visceral hatred of proper nouns um, yes. of. Um, character names, of place names, um, and yet, to me, this book is absolutely notably set in the 1980s, uh, maybe because it's so pre-technology, it sort of looks that way, but, um, or pre-the technology that we, um, that dominates our lives. Um, can you talk a little bit about, about uh, have you, in your earliest books, were you also kind of eschewing the, the kind of use of, of proper nouns, and what how did, why did, I guess maybe the way I want to put it is how do they get in the way of you writing what you want to write?
2: How do proper nouns get yeah. in the way? Yeah, I really don't like using proper nouns. And I've only ever named two characters, and I didn't really name them, I just alluded to names, and one was SS, I think, my initials, and one was just my last name. <laughs> so I'm not very inventive <laughs> when it comes to names. Um, and I... I, for me it's about language it's about that word getting repeated over and over it's the same reason I don't I think it falls under the same category of why I don't use dialogue tags or you know that aren't said um, or why I don't use quotation marks like I think some things are just a visual distraction for me and if I commit to a name then that sound it's not just the name it's that sound and the way it looks on the page and that spelling and you know the shape of the letters, all of that it gets repeated throughout an entire book, and I just can't commit like that, you know? I have commitment issues. <laughs>
0: Commitment-phobe related to proper nouns. Yeah, yeah. it's yeah. too
2: much, and I I mean, I'm wearing a proper noun around, you know, on a necklace right now, and I, I love names, like, I love people's names. Um, she likes people, too, very specific people. And... I like people, I do. <laughs> and But I don't, I just can't, it took me like months to name my cat when I had a cat. Months. And it, I'm just, it's such a commitment, you know. And so, but with a book, it's really, it's about that language. Like, I'd have to know what the name meant. So when this, when this was, when I tried to write that novel that I abandoned, I had names. And that part was making me very unhappy. And then I just had initials. And even that was too much because then those initials could mean like all these different words. It it could be anything. Um, So yeah, I just sort of take it out. I feel like even the capital letter is distracting.
0: Which brings us to punctuation, (laughs) which um, I've never had an author so aware of the precise data related to words and punctuation in, actually, in her book. I actually did some research did, And I, I asked Susan to do a little bit of research because at one point she gave a little data to me. In the very kind of final stretches, you were very aware of how many semicolons and yes. certain how many certain times certain words appear. So can you give us your data?
2: Yeah. I mean, I just looked up a few words and some punctuation marks, but when i was i was away last winter working on this book and i was talking to another writer or no two winters ago um, and i said how many like how many times can you put fuck in a book and it's and have it be too much like what's too much and he was like i don't know i think like maybe like 20 i was like in the whole book like i've got like 20 on this page and he's like, well, how many times do you have it? So I looked, and it's 130. But it's like the whole book. I mean, out of 33,000 words, that's hardly anything. So fuck is 130. Father is 295, <laughs> which I think is way too much. But mother is only 162. Brother is 191. These are, this is what I was looking for. The word girl is 168, but really what you're waiting for is semicolons, 1,918 semicolons versus 1,825 commas and 1,836 periods. So more semicolons. The data tells me that
0: semicolons are more important than fathers.
2: (laughs) No comment. (laughs) And the word the is in there...
0: Fewer times in semicolons. <laughs> in all seriousness, but you really did kind of do this as we got there. What what did you do with these? How did you look at these when you started like looking? And like, did it, did numbers really tell you something that told you you had too much of one thing or another? It told me I had a
2: lot. I don't know about too much. Like the word everyone says this book is about a girl who drowns, but the word drown is only in the book twenty four times. <laughs> <laughs> so is it? And on the way here, in
0: drown it makes a big impression. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah you can only, you only have to say that one once or twice and you know what happened um but you know maybe that maybe that's it's not fun. what it's you're, about
0: you're talking to sam lipsite and when you go to new york and i think sam has something with the students about you only have so many fucks to give in a book so you should um, yeah i have, have these talk numbers about that ready for him for sam yeah <laughs> um well i wanted to leave some time for your guys's questions i mean we could keep susan and i have worked together for some years so we could keep jabbering on for a while, but <laughs> I'd like to open up to you guys. Yeah.
1: Um, oh, uh,
0: okay. um, so a lot of what I think about in, my, in terms of my own writing is what to read or to feel liberated to um, make brave choices in my own writing. And so when I read your book, um, not only did I feel liberated, but I also wondered what liberated you um, to write something so... I think the word experimental is kind of denigrating towards how much deliberation goes into the book, but um, something so... Experimental, for for, <laughs> for lack of a better word. Um, what So what texts did you read that kind of empowered you to write something in the way that you did, or gave you steam and if not if it didn't come from a text per se um, what process or basically what liberated you in order for you to write this
2: good question Um, I mean there are a lot of texts that I like and that I read and that I teach um, but I think that I'm really much more inspired by visual art um, still and um, and how to come to terms with that that even teaching Uh, graduate students last semester found myself bringing in a lot of visual references because I felt like that was a way to really empower writing and you know try different things I think there's a lot of really exciting things going on sort of politically in that realm but um you know I'm really influenced by just a lot of um female artists who put themselves in the work. like Cindy Sherman or Pipilotti Wrist, um, her videos, I don't know if you know her work, but um, and I look a lot, I, I look at a lot of that, and I'm, I listen to a lot of music too, but I, as I was told over drinks before I, I came here, I don't have good taste in music, but I think I have great taste in music. Um, you do. I've, thank you. Yes, I do, because I hosted several dance parties with some of the people in this room. <laughs> um, but um, but it, it it's you know there are, there are writers I love like I go back to all the time like Virginia Woolf who I think was really bold and took a lot of risks and um, you know Faulkner and my you know professors I've studied with but I feel like I am more than more than anything it's it's been visual arts for me if that answers your question
0: yeah anybody else and maybe I can get the microphone over there let me see.
2: Wow, hi. Hi Randy. Um <laughs> so I, I I wondered if you could talk a little bit about I was thinking I was as I was listening to your work, the um the music of it, but I guess it's the the formal choices, for lack of a better word, the declarative sentences, the repetition, the cherry chair bowling holy like the the rhymes that come and go, and sorry. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so if you if you just want to, because there's a there's a particular voice that comes from, and a kind of uh, really wonderful relentlessness that comes from those declaratives. And so if you just want to talk a little bit about your formal choices. Um, yeah, I mean, I I have to read aloud a lot to make sure I'm not rhyming too much, and. As you know, I'm not a poet, and <laughs> can't be, and and I know, and you write rhyming poetry, like you actually do it, and so I'm glad that you heard any of that, you know, in the work. Um, but I, I, I feel like sometimes I'm afraid of the when that happens of it becoming too simplistic, you know. So reading aloud, like making sure I'm not overusing words um, with like too close to each other, right? I actually do go in and sort of scan for that. Um, but sometimes I really like the way those sounds happen, and a lot of it is not intentional. You know, it's just what happens when you're sort of in the zone and you're like trying to feel the emotion of that of that story or that space. Um, but formally, you know, I there are no set fiction forms, right? There's one shape basically that we're taught and we have some rising action and then a climax <laughs> happens and then there's some falling action and that has never really been my experience <laughs> of storytelling or anything in my life. <laughs> so, I you know, had to get a little more inventive and um I probably some of that maybe gets pulled from, you know, poetry um but I think that you, I'm, so I have to, you know, I have to make up a form, and this is the rule for this story. I'm not going to use periods. I'm going to use semicolons because that quickens it, right? That speeds up the pace in some way. And I'm not going to allow paragraphs to be to be more than one sentence long, and that does something different to the way we read it or the way I read it out loud. So I just I kind of figure it out as I go along, and then if the form works, maybe I'll try it again for another. Piece, um, and then I have a form for myself that I can always go back to. But there's no place to look, like unlike poetry, where you, there are dozens of forms that you could try on, and you can still invent more. You know, and it's such a luxury. I think. Does that answer your question?
0: Thanks. <laughs> Next, in the front row here. Yeah. So, when you were writing, do you think
2: at all about things that are humorous and? I even wonder if it's really funny, but when I was reading things, it was maybe because it was more familiar to me, and I thought, oh, yeah, I remember how that happened, and it made it seem <laughs> humorous to me, but it isn't necessarily, like, laugh out, like, funny. Did you think about that when you were writing it, that there was something humorous in it, or were you trying to be that. Yeah. All. I'm I can tell you I'm never trying to be funny. Like I <laughs> I I know that if I tried to be funny, it would never work. You know, like I, I would just fail. And so I'm always trying to be like, um I'm I'm often trying to be conversational and sometimes that ends up being funny. And um, someone asked me a question about humor in my work The utter Reading last week. And you know I I try I try to be true to whatever the character's kind of emotional state is and however that translates. But sometimes a word will come up that will just make an audience laugh. And I I didn't anticipate that. And often that word is dumbass. That when I read a story with a dumbass and I see so you guys just laughed. I don't know why that word's so funny. We use it all day, every day. But somehow it's very funny in my work, I think. But I think it's about contrast, you know, that suddenly there's a shift like um you know my character's talking about outer space and the next thing she's drinking beer and there's something just really familiar there and a place you can just sort of land and i think people laugh maybe when that happens or that feels funny because it's it's actually less unsettling you know it's not actually funny it's just less painful <laughs> but yeah but you know my real life i'm you know i laugh i'm very
0: funny <laughs> I'm glad you asked that. I think there is real <laughs> humor in the work, but as you say, it's not ha ha funny. It's <laughs> but, yeah. it yeah. could be like also identification of pain right. that we all, it it yeah. can even be about the pain that we all recognize yeah. that happens in the same way that you know, or that feels inevitable. Or, yeah. I mean, another any other questions in the I love questions. In the That's back cool. of the bus. Every, sorry,
2: Susan. Every chapter <laughs> um kind of gave me a different experience in terms of like teaching
0: me how to read it because the shape was so different like this section you just read um, was really like repetitive poetic and it went line by line but then there are other sections that just like go straight run on until the chapter ends and so I'm kind of wondering like how you decided the shape of each section and then how you chose to order it in the end. Well, great. This comes back in a way to the story question. But so the question for the sake of the recording, I'll just repeat was more or less, was that um, each chapter seems really different formally in some way, that there was a great st- staccato quality to the chapter you read, but others kind of are almost breathless and and run on. And then, so how did that happen? How did you make those formal choices in each chapter? And then how did you order the book?
2: Uh, okay, so, I mean, I don't go into any story knowing what the form is or any Chapter, knowing what the form is going to be. Thank you. You're welcome. And um, I just start writing, and sometimes it just starts taking on a shape, and I follow it for a while, and I decide, you know, at some point if that is going to be what it is, um, at least for a few passes through the book, through that piece, rather. Um, And then I make more conscious decisions about it, like what, you know, by asking questions like, what what is this form actually saying about the story? Like when you look at this form but don't know what the words are, but just look at it, what does it say? What is it telling you about the, emo- the emotional state of the speaker at that point? Um, and so I had to change some forms and I was concerned, and this goes along the lines of my concern that the writing was not ugly enough, that um, my forms were too simplistic that they weren't challenging enough. And so I was trying to challenge myself more with this one. Like, well, how can I make it like, how can I make a semicolon do more? (laughs) Like, how can I make indenting differently say something um, about sort of the shape of this story? So, and then again, like I was saying to Randy, I just repeat it, you know, like if it worked, maybe it'll work for another piece, but because the piece itself is different, it'll change the form in some other way like it'll make it'll deepen it in some way does that make sense <laughs>
0: what about ordering
2: and ordering uh so we i mean we went through it so many times and i the way it ends is not the way it always ended so there was another piece that was the last piece and the last line was much gloomier actually and then i think it was your amazing idea to move that <laughs> And so we did, and um, and I'm much happier with it now. Though I stared at that ending for an entire summer. I just looked at that one literally until
0: like the hour before I was due to the copy editor. I was still
2: like I just sat in in like a very grim, (laughs) grim and gloomy room, just reading it over and over, and 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 then I just had to hand it in. But. but you know I had to start thinking about like, how a section ended and how the piece next to it began and whether those things spoke to one another,, you know, if we were moving forward in some way. So in some ways, this is the most linear thing I've ever written. Um, but within each piece, it's com- each piece is completely nonlinear, you know. Um, so that was exciting. I also condensed time a lot in this piece. It was three summers, now it's one. Many female characters became one character.
0: Yeah, there was a, there really was a more choral feel to that voice early on, and it yeah. became that. that two lady. girls. <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly.
2: it was like seventeen girls in my mind for a while. It's like two girls. I have, I have one thing. When you're talking about the ending, is it? I had a question,
0: but then you kind of answered it. So
2: when you knew it was over, <laughs> was it because you had talked about, with about how long the book should be, or Or did you just feel like, okay, I think this is gonna be, I think I'm
0: done. How do you know? Well, there's so So, many. So The question was, is just, how do you know when you're done um, with it? And um, what was the process of coming to that? Was it through discussion? Was it with with your publisher? Um, How did you know? Part of it was, my memory was that you were just trying to figure out the right tone, like the right mood where you want really deciding what you wanted the reader to take away at the the end.
2: I mean, it just hit me sitting here that, I mean, I'm just talking to everybody tonight, like just brought that whole process back. Like I, there was no guarantee that this would ever be a book on the day that I sent it. Right. And to think of how, how much work we've done just to be sitting here now is amazing to me. Um, So there are so many ends to it. So there's when you feel like you're done and you just can't move anymore. Like I reached a point where I was like, this is basically what the book is. I could keep picking at it, but I could do that forever. So it's time for somebody to see it. And so I sent it to my agent who sent it to my editors and then they looked at it. And then it came back, you know, with notes, right? And so then I worked on it for another year um, and then finished it again in the same place (laughs) um, the next summer and sent it back again. And and that time it had to be completely done. But there were just all of these steps and, you know, now it's done. Now I know because I can't change it. And
0: (laughs) that feels really good. (laughs) Well, On that note, I cannot think of a better way to be completely done with this particular conversation. But thank you, Susan. This is a terrific book. Um, I hope those of you who haven't read it will grab it. But also, I hope that you will buy books at City Lights. So if you've already got this book, buy another book from City Lights. Um, There are so many good books here. Um, So thank you for coming. Thank you, Susan, for this great book. Thank you, Peter. Thanks for listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast from City Lights bookstore and publishers. Our theme music was provided by Axolotl. All City Lights events are free. To see upcoming events at City Lights bookstore in San Francisco, check out www.citylights.com events.